Good afternoon and welcome to Evaluating a Zero Trust Approach to Healthcare Security, a health system CIO media in production sponsored by Medigate. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box, and we will take those later in the program. We're also going to do a poll later, and we will get your responses on that and then share them. Nice way to view the screen today, click in the top center, get it into side-by-side -side mode, then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Chris Friends, CISO and AVP of IT Security with Mount Sinai South Nassau, Christopher Kuehl, CISO and CTO with Dayton Children's Hospital, and Jonathan Langer, co-founder and CEO with Medigate. So we're going to jump right in. Let's start with you, Chris Friends. Give us an overview of your, your new organization and your role. Congrats, by the way. Thank you. I'm Chris Friends. I'm the AVP of IT Security for Mount Sinai South Nassau, and we're a hospital located in Long Island, New York. How many, uh, approximately how many beds you got over there? I just want to get some idea of size. We're approximately 500 beds. About 500, a good size hospital. Very good, Chris Kuehl? Yeah, um, we're, my name's Chris Kuehl. Uh, from, I'm the CISO and CTO at Dayton Children's Hospital. Uh, we have 181 beds, uh, two major campuses and about 20 remote sites. Um, we've got around 3,400 employees, uh, 412 of those are physicians. Very good. And how long have you been over there, Chris? Um, in the CISO role, uh, a little over two years. In the CTO additional role, uh, eight months. Eight months. Very good. Um, Jonathan. Hello, everyone. I'm Jonathan. I'm the CEO of a company named Medigate. We're a healthcare security company. And one of the things that we do is uh, it pertains to zero trust, which I know we'll talk about more today. So looking forward to a good discussion here. Mm, very good. All right, Chris Kuehl, let's start with you. How will zero trust work in healthcare? Kind of a general question, but get us started, would you? Yeah, sure thing. With uh, healthcare and zero trust, I guess the way that I view that question, right, is we have to be careful when implementing zero trust. I mean, I think we all can agree to that, um, mainly due to all the different types of devices that we have on our networks, um, the uniqueness of each type of device from pumps to MRI machines, the fact that they all use different ports, protocols, and have different destinations. And if we, if we aren't careful with implementing zero trust, that could negatively impact patient care. Um, you know, I, I think zero trust is, is definitely one of those necessary things that we need to make sure that we're doing in healthcare. Um, you know, I, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. I'm sure we'll get into plenty of detail. Uh, Jonathan. Yeah, I totally agree with, uh, with Chris's statement around uh, one of the challenges being just the diversity of the assets and the, and the mission criticality. 
So we got to make sure that we're not breaking any workflows or anything of that sort, especially in healthcare. That's one of the challenges. Maybe one thing, one additional comment that I can make in my eyes, and at least based on the experience that I've had, is zero trust in healthcare is going to be a combination of tools since we have managed and unmanaged devices and so on on the network. So part of that can be uh, tools like I am, uh, identity and access management. Uh, but a big part of that is also going to be network-based uh, segmentation. At least that would be my recommendation uh, for all the unmanaged devices that there's just no other way to touch uh, rather than through the network and kind of limit their scope of communications through that. Uh, so I'm sure we'll, we'll get into more detail in this conversation, uh, but I just think that it's going to be a mix of different tools in order to implement the overall strategy. Jonathan, is it safe to say from what I'm hearing from you and, and Chris Kuehl that uh, zero trust, if if not implement, if implemented sort of too rapidly or with a heavy hand, you can you can break things, you can cause a lot of problems? Uh, absolutely. Um, like a good example is, uh, let's take uh, imaging devices, just as, a, just as an example. Uh, those devices need to communicate with uh, the PAC server in order to, to be able to archive the, the images themselves. If we don't allow that workflow to happen, then, then those imaging devices won't be able to communicate properly and that's gonna disrupt the, the clinical workflow. That's just one example. Of course, you can take that example and copy paste it on many other clinical workflows. So that's key. I'm sure both Chris's would, would agree that doctors don't like to be disrupted uh, when they do their jobs or physicians in general. <laughs> so, so for that for that reason and for many other reasons, you don't want to you don't want to break a clinical workflow at all. So definitely. Chris Friends, um, starting at a new place, implemented zero trust in your previous hospital. Uh, gonna planning on working on it at your new place. Um, what are your thoughts? I definitely agree with everything said so far. It is something you have to take your time and stage in because you don't want to break stuff. Um, the last thing you want as the head of security organization is to make people resistant to security because you start to cause problems. So you really do want to take your time. At my previous place, we rolled it out over a period of uh, two years. So it was not a quick rollout. It was staged and timed. And um, we really took our time to ensure that we really learned all the traffic flows before we put rules in place and started blocking stuff. So I, I definitely agree with the timed approach. Um, I also think two zero trust has become more relevant to healthcare than ever before, because if we look at a lot of recent events like the Riyadh attacks and other attacks against hospitals, one of the things that really determines how successfully a hospital withstands that attack is how well segmented its network is. Um, the hospitals that fare the worst for those attacks are the ones with completely flat networks where one compromised computer rapidly turns into an entire network of compromised computers. So I, I think um, current circumstances make zero trust more relevant than in healthcare never before. But I do agree it has to be approached cautiously and done over time. So would you use the word testing? Well, you said you have to, to map the flows and things like that. Is, is testing another word you could use for that or is that different? Uh, I think it's a little different. The approach I, I took when I had previously done Zero Trust and it's a similar approach to what I'm gonna take in the new organization is the, the first step was basically to identify all of the assets on the network. And it sounds simple, but it's actually quite a bit of a challenge to actually figure out you know, where everything is, um, what devices you have, what IP addresses they have, things like that. And that's a fairly time-consuming process. The next step of the approach typically is once you have that asset inventory is to actually begin to figure out how all the various assets on your network actually talk to each other. 
So Jonathan mentioned uh, PAC systems. So figuring out what uh, medical devices actually communicate with that PAC system, what workstations in your environment will communicate with that PAC server, mapping out all those different traffic flows, uh, what systems communicate with what and over what ports and protocols they communicate with. That's actually gonna be your biggest challenge with Zero Trust and where I advise you spend the most time because the more carefully you map out those traffic flows, the less likely it's going to be to break something when you actually put rules in place to begin blocking stuff. Um, and that's going to be your biggest challenge, your biggest time consumer, where I advise you spend the most time is actually mapping out that data. And one final point to add in that regard is even if you don't want to do zero trust, it's really a worthwhile exercise to still do just from an incident response perspective, because if you have a really good idea of what traffic flows are supposed to be occurring on your network, it makes it much easier to identify those flows that shouldn't be occurring on your network. Interesting. Chris Kuehl, um, Chris Friends talked about seeing things in the news, different breaches that we've seen recently. Do you, th do you find yourself seeing information about breaches and saying and being able to um, equate the severity of a breach with where they are on the zero trust timeline or, or spectrum? So, for example, when you see a breach that seems to be spinning out of control or affecting a large part of an organization, do you assume that they were less mature on, on a zero trust continuum? Can you equate things like that? I mean, do you have to assume if something's contained that they're pretty sophisticated or is it hard to say from the outside? Well, realistically, right, you, you never want to assume anything. Um, but if, if it's an organization that's been completely um, owned, right, by ransomware, I think it's relatively safe to say that that their network was more than likely pretty flat. There wasn't; they were either immature in zero trust or hadn't even approached it whatsoever. Um, you know, compared to other organizations that that only have a, a small, minor incident, right? Um, but yeah, it's 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 difficult to assume. Jonathan, can we, can we use the word contained? I, I'm thinking of the word contained. So it's easier to contain a breach. You know, you think of almost a submarine, right? If there's a, a breach in one area, you know, they have seals and doors. I'm not very nautically minded, but um, is, is that kind of what we're talking about, the ability to contain a breach? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think that today, realistically, uh, since uh, healthcare systems are so interconnected, so wired, because that's just the way that the architecture is going with all the external applications, cloud, and so on, you almost have to assume that at some point in time, you will be breached because of just the ease of doing that and the very large attack surface. And once you, if you agree with that notion, which is, I think, the predominant a notion that is acceptable today in healthcare cybersecurity, then really the next line of defense is doing that type of containing. Um, now, if you're able to contain the, the, the spread into a, a limited scope, limited area in the network, the overall damage is just gonna be a much, much lower, faster to respond to, a easier to, to end the incident and so on. And that's why, that's, one of the things that makes uh, zero trust so important for healthcare organizations, especially since they have mission critical uh, devices uh, and uh, patient safety aspects that you, you need to take into account. Uh, so uh, definitely containment is a key aspect here. 
Chris Friends, um, you know, Chris Kuhl used the word flat, I think, to describe, uh, I'm assuming, a, a network that is not segmented. Chris Kuhl, is that correct? Is that what flat means? Yes. So, Chris Friends, you know, you started a new place, and I don't want you to tell us everything, and then the hackers are on the line, and they go, oh, my God, this guy's wide open. Let's let's go attack his network. But is that something you look at? Can you look at a network um, and say, this network, if I was in charge of it, I could sleep at night. This one, I could never sleep at night because of how flat it is. Is that correct description? Uh, to, to some extent, yes. A flat, basically, network is every device in the network can communicate with every other device. And that's really a scenario you don't want because that would allow us if that one PC becomes compromised or something else, it has the ability to infect all kinds of other stuff within the organization. Whereas a more segmented network, that particular device can only communicate with, let's say, a few other devices on the network and not mm -hmm. everything. So um, to go back to Jonathan's point about containment, that makes the easier to contain the breach because if that one PC can only communicate with five other PCs in the organization, that infection may never get past that handful of PCs. It may never get to the larger environment. And that's kind of the goal of putting network segmentation um, in place. Zero Trust is kind of taking that concept to an even more extreme level where you lock it down so a particular device can only communicate with what it needs to and nothing more. But any form of network segmentation is definitely better than having a completely flat and unsegmented network. And to kind of add to Jonathan's point about it's an eventuality when something is going to break through your perimeter and um, get inside your network, I can give a really interesting story about that, about how I once had a perimeter breached. Uh, we once had an x-ray machine that actually failed, and the hard drive in the x-ray machine went. Now, unbeknownst to us, the biomed vendor who serviced the machine didn't have the original software install disks for that x-ray machine, but they serviced that same exact x-ray machine at another hospital down the street. So they cloned that hospital's hard drive and use it to restore our x-ray machine to service. Now this was done without IT or IT security being involved. And a few minutes after they bring the machine back online, our DNS sync call starts going off. We start getting all kinds of alerts about this machine and we pull it off the network. And because of the segmentation we had, the went nowhere, the threat, but um, there was basically a malware infected x-ray machine um, and it made for a really interesting call to the other hospital. But um, it's a really weird way to have a perimeter breached. And there's all kinds of ways in which your perimeter is going to be breached that you're never going to suspect. So having some internal focus on security can be just as important as having a focus on keeping a secure perimeter. Jonathan, when you go around and you look at customers, prospects, new customers, things like that, you see all different stages, all different levels of segmentation versus flatness. So, I mean, tell me a story or two without naming names. Have you gone into a place and said, Oh my God, this is completely flat. They've got no set, and you've gone in other places. I mean, can you? I don't know if you can be over segmented. Can you overdo it? But anyway, your thoughts? I'd say definitely, based on what I've been seeing, there are different levels of uh, of maturity. Um, I, I think that some some organizations, what I tend to see, uh, going back to Chris Friends's point, uh, have some level of segmentation, uh, and usually what that that means is that kind of like an old, the old way of doing things, you would have VLANs, so they did VLANs and they, they began to segment their network uh, that way, kind of an old, uh, an old practice. Um, and some have completely, don't even have that. I've seen that as well. Uh, I think that the main um, obstacle that is everyone wants to reach zero trust or most people wanna, want to achieve zero trust or at least some form of segmentation 
the biggest challenge, the biggest hurdle uh, to making progress is just that lack of visibility. Because without that, there's really not a lot that you can do if you can't identify the devices and you can't identify their workflows. The zero trust at that point remains uh, an obscure notion and nothing that you can actually do about it. And that's the challenge and why people aren't really making a, whole, a ton of progress uh, in, in, many, in many ways. And that lack of visibility, that's what Chris Friends was talking about in terms of doing the work and mapping the flows. So that's just a, a, a function of putting in the time and to do it, to, to get the visibility? So, so it, again, based on my experience, I've kind of seen uh, two ways to go about this. One is um, doing this manually and kind of mapping out the different, uh, the different assets, their owners, the IP addresses, all the technical attributes, and so on. The problem with uh, with healthcare in that regard is that it, there's just so many devices uh, out there. there there's just uh, an abundance of devices, and also it's it's ever changing. Some devices mm-hmm. are retired. You get new ones, new medical devices, a lot of transient devices, mobile devices. Uh, healthcare is is tough in that regard. Um, so the other approach that people are using uh, today is doing automation with tools. Um, and that can shorten the time in order for you to reach uh, to reach visibility. Um, and sometimes it's a combination of the two. Uh, so that's, I guess, those are the ways that I've seen this uh, uh, done. Chris Kuehl, when you look at your network segmentation, um, uh, is it ever changing? Is it something you're always working on, or is it something you sort of have to get set up and and then you're good? I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, you're just like Jonathan was saying, right? You, you have new technology that's coming in constantly or, or, or being decommissioned constantly. So from those perspectives, um, you're, you're constantly updating your segmentation. Um, anytime a new device comes in that now has to communicate with packs, right? That, that needs to be updated and, and included in that segment. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, listening to, to, um, Chris friends and, and, uh, you know, Jonathan talking about the different breaches and and segmentation, um, helping, uh, we, we also had, it reminded me, we also had a a very similar thing where if we weren't segmented, uh, we, we could have been in real trouble. One of our business associates was, was impacted with ransomware and it came through our, um, you know, site to site tunnel that we had with them. And uh, it luckily, right, we, we had everything locked down and segmented and we were able to um, identify and, and drop the tunnel between the two organizations after only a, a handful of devices that they had access to got the dropper file. Um, and, and, you know, we had luckily been able to block the outbound traffic so that it couldn't download the payload and all that stuff. But segmentation and, and uh, um, you know, constantly monitoring, like we're talking about having that visibility is, is critical. Yeah, it sounds like, the, you know, that, that classic question of what keeps you up at night, uh, I would think having, being flat would keep you up at night because you know that something gets in, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, so segmentation is good for, for getting a, a good night's rest, I would imagine. Um, and in, in it, I know we've covered a lot of stuff, but uh, let's, let's say this, in addition to anything we've discussed, 
um, other things that make this difficult in healthcare. Jonathan? So I think that maybe two other areas that we haven't touched upon exactly up until now in terms of um, the obstacles. One, um, I mean, we've been talking a lot about visibility. I think that when it comes to visibility in healthcare, it's even a greater challenge because you need more, let's call it confidence. You need confidence in, in, the, in the fact that the visibility that you're obtaining is indeed accurate and granular. Um, again, going back to the fact that we're talking about mission critical infrastructure. And that led, to reach that level of confidence, uh, I think that's a challenge uh, that, is some, that is somewhat unique. Um, the other thing that I think, the other aspect that we haven't talked about yet uh, that's challenging for healthcare, I think that once you have those, uh, that visibility and the traffic flows mapped out, then based on that data, the ability to generate the actual policies that will be orchestrated across the, the various enforcement points in your network, firewall, Mac, whatever you want to you use, uh, there's a lot of effort in that as well. Uh, at least based on what I've been seeing in my experience. So there's that additional step that you need to take after you have all that, uh, that makes it even tougher. And sometimes in healthcare, we're seeing smaller security teams. Uh, so that's obviously something that's gonna be uh, somewhat of a burden on them. Um, but that, that piece is, uh, is challenging, especially if you're looking to do segmentation across various enforcement points or, um, vendors, say firewall, NAC, uh, uh, whatnot, uh, that are already installed within your fabric. Chris Franz, your thoughts? I would definitely agree with that. And um, we basically staged out our rollout to avoid a lot of those issues or at least uh, mitigate them. Um, that's why it was partially done over a two-year period of time. And we started with the low-hanging fruit first. We did really basic systems like DNS, DHCP, um, things where Every network engineer really understands the ports and protocols and things like that. And that was largely by choice because that allowed the team to learn the new tools with minimizing the risk of breakage because the ports and protocols and other stuff are so well understood. As we progressed on, we did things like our VDI desktops next. Um, reason being is because it's a relatively, most, most organizations VDI desktops are clones of each other. So you figure out one set of policies that works for a desktop and you can then apply that to a large number of devices within the organization. So it's kind of a great way to ramp up protection without involving um, too much uh, work in terms of figuring out the policies that had to go in place. We kind of then did our high risk systems next and we saved systems that we considered very complex but low risk for last. And um, you know, we did stage it out a system at a time. So we were not trying to do, let's say our PAC system and um, you know, our EHR the same day. We wanted to space that kind of stuff out. So we minimized the chance of breakage or if anything went wrong, it made it much easier to identify the cause. So it's, um, it's definitely a doable thing, but you do have to take your time with it. You do have to be willing to space it out over time so you do minimize that risk of breakage. Chris Kuehl, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I totally agree with, with both Jonathan and, and Chris. Um, you know, something else that what I found was difficult for um, not only my organization, but other organizations in our region that I've talked to that are also uh, trying to go down the the zero trust journey is um, just the the education for the staff themselves, right? What do they do? They really fully understand what micro segmentation looks like and how to how to implement it. Um, 
do you need to get your staff trained on how to do those things? Same thing with implementing, you know, whatever policy engine you decide to, to use, right? Um, do they know how to effectively create those policies? You know, um, what we did kind of a similar, um, you know, approach to what Chris was talking about, right? DNS, DHCP, um, Active Directory, those are all, um, you know, known, very known uh, ports protocols. Um, but then we also, the approach that we went after that was anything that new coming into our environment. Um, we, we started building out um, segmentation for those, also policies around that um, and, and getting those things applied. And then um, we started looking across our, our environment and we had, had three criteria that, that those devices had to meet um, for us to, to focus on for, for getting them segmented and, and everything. Um, you know, the first one was, um, does it impact patient care, right? Does it touch a patient? Um, can we run antivirus on it or other protections, right? So if the answer is yes to it, it impacts patient care. No, we cannot run antivirus or, or protect it in, in another fashion, right? And then is it expensive, right? An expensive piece of equipment or technology. Uh, if the answer to that is yes, then we, we worked at getting the, that uh, segmented policies implemented and stuff like that, right? Perfect example is, um, you know, some of the robots that are used for surgery, right? We can't run AV on those, antivirus on those, or, um, or any software really on those. So those got segmented because they met, all, they checked all the boxes, right? Expensive impact patient care, can't run protections on it. So that was our approach. Jonathan, you're not nodding your head. Your thoughts, sir? I, I really agree with, uh, with that statement. In, in fact, uh, it was something that I wanted to talk about uh, perhaps later in this discussion, but I'll say it now. Uh, I think that sometimes when I look at segmentation projects or zero trust uh, projects that folks do, uh, there's sometimes a tendency um, to, how would I say, to, to jump their gun, to start doing stuff on the network and, and to start moving uh, and showing progress, which is a good thing. But a really important step, which I think uh, Chris Kuehl just mentioned, is just coming up with a strategy. Where do I want to start? Uh, what, are, what is the grouping uh, that I want to do in terms of, uh, of the micro-segmentation? Which, which device types or high-risk device? Or what is that common denominator that I want to go after? And then start implementing. Um, and, and you have to think of the strategy before moving forward, because otherwise what I've seen happen uh, several times is that folks started um, implementing a security policy on the network. But then they realized, you know what, this doesn't really cover what I needed. So now I have to go back to stage one and kind of restart things altogether. And that's just a shame because there's a lot of resources in this. Chris Friends mentioned previously that this took him two years in, in, his, in his last organization. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna waste it's a long process as it is, if you're gonna waste a couple more months, that's just unwarranted. Uh, so that strategy piece is something that I, I totally agree with. And I would definitely advocate spending time on that in order to refrain from mistakes. Chris, friends, thoughts on getting started? 
I definitely agree with all the points made so far. I, I especially like Chris Cool's point about starting with the new implementations because that's a very easy way to start because no one's using the system yet. It's an ideal uh, test case and other stuff. And also going back to the point of just starting simple, starting with the well-known um, servers with uh, like Active Directory, DNS, DHCP, basically start small and begin to scale it in. Um, that's kind of the key to doing it. It's just kind of taking it in small chunks, but being persistent. So you set a goal to do this system and then you move on to the next system, kind of take it a system at a time. And um, that's kind of the approach that I took in my past place. It's kind of the approach I tend to take with the new place is just keep making small steps and each step kind of brings you a little closer to the goal. And what about what Jonathan was saying, Chris Friends, about, uh, you know, he's seen organizations start and then have to go back because they didn't have a strategy. Can, can you imagine that? Can you picture that happening? Um, I could picture that happening in some cases because also hospital environments are somewhat dynamic too, where there's changes to the environment. You might not have expected the addition of, you know, so many hospital beds due to COVID or something else. So I can see an event like that having definitely a big impact on some people's rollouts of different things. Um, but I think the important part is to begin to develop a strategy and to start taking those steps towards the strategy. Yes, you may have to alter some things here or there, um, but you'll keep progressing if you keep moving along. Chris Kuehl, do, do, is there a, a time element? I mean, we talked about the time. You know, Chris Friends talked about that. There's a big time thing here. You got to take your time. You have to start with the strategy. You have to progress, you know, rationally, and you have to take time. Um, do people have the time right now with everything that's going on with COVID and extending the enterprise? Or is this something you can't afford not to? You have to find the time. I think um, in today's environment, right, um, Chris was talking earlier about the the types of attacks that are that are being directed against healthcare, right, with Ryuk and, and some of the other um, campaigns. Um, I think that that this is something that you have to find the time to do. Yeah. Some, somehow, some way we, we need as a, as a, you know, healthcare industry, we need to start going down this road um, further and further because at the end of the day, we're, none of us can afford to be down. None of us can afford to have uh, the level of impact that a ransomware attack would have across an organization for, for the regions that we serve. Right. So um, no, there's not a lot of time to be able to do this. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that that pain is felt across the board, but unfortunately it, it's something that we all need to make time to do. Jonathan, is there a competing approach? Like, like some people want to do zero trust and then another group of people say, no, that's not the way I'm going to go be. Is there, a, or is it pretty much zero trust is the way, but it's just a lot of work. I think that for the, the predominant uh, sentiment that I've seen is that everyone wants to do zero trust. But when you talk about zero trust, it's a concept. So the interpretation of, uh, of zero trust in various organizations is different. So some would say, uh, I want to go, like, I want to go the, the whole way, uh, meaning I want to I want to get granular policies for every subgroup of devices out there, um, and I'm going to take a, a two-year run at it or whatever, depending on the size and technology and so on. But I want to I want to I want to go for the long run. Other organizations may say, uh, you know what, we don't have all the resources 
a, that we would want right now. So we're going to do a little bit of a more uh, limited scope of, of zero trust. So maybe we're just going to do things at the perimeter. A, maybe we're going to do uh, broader groups and start off with that and get granular a little bit down the road. Many ways to slice and dice this. And I think that the, the, the overall would be everyone wants to do this, uh, but what exactly are you going to do and what's the fullest extent? There's variance there. Chris, your, Chris, friends, your thoughts on that? Is, is there a competing approach or, or is did Jonathan describe it pretty accurately? I think he described it pretty accurately. And I'd say some of it too is you shouldn't necessarily let perfect be the enemy of good in some case, because everything you do to segment the network is going to improve your level of security. So even if you can't get it as granular as you want that first go around, it doesn't mean it's not worth trying to segment the network better. Um, even if you have a network segmented by department, which is fairly uh, coarse, it's still much better than having that you know, flat network. And everything you can do to begin to improve the segmentation to a more granular level from there is going to result in a measurable improvement in terms of security. So it's um, one of those things that just because it's difficult and it may not be achievable to do it to the level of granularity you desire, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't start down the process of making the network you know, more and more segmented. So I think it's something that can definitely be staged in over time. And with each element of segmentation you add, you're going to be better off than you were before you added it. Chris Kuehl, are there, are there any of your CISO buddies out there that say you guys are crazy? This is not the way to go. Uh, no, so far I, I haven't heard anybody say that. Um, <laughs> instead, we're, you know, we're, we're getting asked, hey, how did you do that? How, mm-hmm. you know, um, where'd you start? How'd you, how'd you get started? How'd you convince uh, and get buy-in from the business to be able to even start down this journey? Because, you know, it requires... Uh, potentially requires significant education, um, not only for the IT teams, but also for the clinical side, right? If this, we're going to do this, if this breaks, you need to let us know and be aware, situational awareness. So um, yeah, we're, we don't see any, any naysayers, uh, at least not yet. Jonathan, is is there an approach that CISOs need to take to either explain this to the CIOs or uh, the CEOs, the COOs, the CFOs, the board. Um, you know, let's say you're a CISO and, and you you know you believe this is the approach and this is going to be a long road, but this is where I want to take this organization because based on my knowledge of security, this is what we need to do. Um, can you give any advice on to how the CISO can make the case uh, to the people they would need to make it to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, Chris Kuehl and, and I were talking about this before the, the call started. Um, I think that there's a, since this is such a long process, uh, or at least it's not a, there's no magic wand. It doesn't happen overnight, uh, the, the journey to zero trust. Uh, and there are resources that need to be uh, dedicated in order to get this done, but both in terms of technology and people and time. It, the, in my eyes, the message to the, um, to the C-level executives should be about what the process looks like, not in technical terms, but in, but, but in, but in process terms. Uh, what is it, what, where do we start? Uh, what are the steps? And most importantly, what is this going to achieve and what is the value? Going back to your question, Anthony, pre- previously about containment, uh, that's what it's gonna do. It's gonna do risk reduction. Uh, and as much as you can quantify that, uh, that would be the message that I would uh, uh, that I would uh, that I would try to state to the to the C level. 
I would definitely try to refrain from uh, talking to them about ACLs and east-west firewalls and uh, the technical implementation because that's where uh, you're going to go down a rabbit hole that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend that. Chris, friends, uh, when you started at your new organization, it's only been a few weeks. Have you had conversations with um, those you report up to, uh, or maybe I would imagine even in the interview process where you said, here's what I believe in, here's, here's what I think, and here's what I would want to do. Um, so just, again, as I asked Jonathan, just that process of explaining to senior leadership, this is where I want to take this organization, and here's why. The huge ransomware threat has definitely prompted those uh, conversations, uh, particularly that was, had a start date when those attacks were at their uh, height. So that kind of made the conversation much easier to have, which was an advantage. Um, I can tell you the first time I sold Zero Trust to my last organization, we did it largely through a simulation. One of the things that we had done was we actually simulated a ransomware attack within the organization. So we took the ICAR test string, which for anybody unfamiliar with it, it's a harmless string of characters that many years ago, all the AV makers agreed to treat as a virus. So it kind of provided a safe but um, effective way to test um, endpoint security and uh, the spread of potential malware through the organization. So we wrote a script that tried to basically copy that string to all of the PCs within the organization. And one of the things that we had learned is we had a segmented network at the time, but it was segmented by department. And um, so we learned as an organization that if we were to lose our entire radiology department, let's say, it was still going to be disastrous to operations of the hospital. So that kind of got us thinking about how we could take that network segmentation to the next level because the department segmentation, while effective, was not really granular enough to meet our needs to continue to provide healthcare to the patients. And um, it was through an exercise like that that actually I was able to effectively sell Zero Trust the first time around. Chris Kuehl, thoughts on communicating to senior leadership about what you're trying to do? Yeah. Um you know, very similar to the other, to what Jonathan and Chris were, were saying, right? Um, we we started uh, down the zero trust path um, uh, about 18 months ago, um, you know, and and trying to get buy-in and convince, you know, senior leadership and, and the board uh, to to fund it basically um, was, was a good conversation because it had, it gave us the opportunity to do the, the, the rehearsed elevator speech, right? The, just like Jonathan was saying, um, the high level process, what, here's where we are, here's where we want to be and, and here's what we need to do to get there. Um, and, but in that elevator speech, we also talked about, um, what this is going to get us, right? Okay. You're mm -hmm. going to spend X number of dollars to get this, uh, this type of technology or, or whatever. Um, but if we don't do this, here's the potential of what could happen, you know? And it, it just so happened that um, when we started that, that conversation with senior leadership, um, there were other healthcare organizations that were, that were being impacted by ransomware, um, you know, data exfil. Uh, so, so I was able to point at those other organizations. Some of them were here in Ohio and uh and say you know look this could have been prevented or significantly decreased if they would have been you know having going down the zero trust path right um and and it helped because our our leadership knew some of those other people um and and had communicated with them uh you know before they were breached so 
it really made it personal for them um, to where they could understand the, the need because they, they knew that they saw what happened to the other organizations, knew they didn't want it to happen to us. All right. Very good. I want to put out our poll now, um, a little more detailed one than we usually put out, but we've got three questions here, multiple choice. Uh, first two is single answer, and the third one you can check off all that apply, and our panelists can answer this too. So um, what is the biggest obstacle in implementing zero trust? So weigh in on that. What is, uh, the, what is most important in a zero trust architecture? And uh, what do you use to enforce zero trust policies? Again, multiple choice on that one. So go ahead, take your time. Uh, everybody who uh, feels they can answer that and weigh in, we'd appreciate it. Um, and I want to now get to some audience questions. So let's go ahead and do that. First question is for you, Jonathan. Do you think data center micro segmentation provides substantive value and is worthwhile to implement in 2021? That's a that's a really good uh, that's a really good question. Um, so I, I would say this first. I would define a data center a, in healthcare systems today. It's become kind of data centers. A, you have stuff on the cloud. You have stuff that is a, on the the legacy on-prem a, a on-prem network. A, so when I when I look at segmentation at the data center, I would I would encompass both. A, I would say that there's value in that. A, and I've been looking at that as well from a technological perspective in terms of how to get that done. But I would start with the, the network segmentation before going to data center segmentation, a, because that's a, that's, a, that's a long journey too. A, so if you're at that level of maturity where you're done with the network, seg with the network segmentation and, a, and you have the, resource to, to, the resources to go to data center, I would, a, but just make sure that the network is done first. Very good. Um, let's uh, have Chris Kuhl answer this audience question. How should smaller to medium-sized hospitals try to get buy-in for this journey? Anything in addition to what we've touched on? Um, <clears throat> trying to get buy-in. So the best thing that I would recommend is, is reach out to other organizations that might have done it or are going down the path of it and find out what what did they do to get buy-in? How did they convince their leadership, um, you know, to to get approval to start that path? Um, you know, I, I think that we've really covered quite a bit of of what some of us have done. Um, yeah. But yeah. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, next question. You answered my question on the heightened awareness of ransomware attacks advancing the need for zero trust. Are there other necessary controls as well that the ransomware environment has surfaced? Um, Chris Friends. Sure, there's lots of other controls. Um, one resource I'm particularly fond of and a little biased because I'm one of the authors of it is the OWASP Anti-Ransomware Guide. That goes through about 45 possible controls you can use to combat ransomware. Um, some things off the top of my head, I'm very big on uh, sandboxing in both firewalls and uh, spam filters to detect novel threats. Um, I'm big on uh, software restriction policies that block um, executables from running and things like the user profile. I, I can think of a lot of other controls, but you know, definitely um, defense in depth is very critical. Zero, zero trust is a great security control, but it's not a panacea for all security needs. And you definitely need to have other controls uh, as well. Jonathan? 
I, I would definitely agree. I mean, I think there's just a, <laughs> we have a lot of problems, we have a lot of security problems and uh, for segmentation, it solves part of the ransomware problem, uh, but certainly not all of it. Um, and th there are definitely other controls that can be used. Uh, Chris mentioned several, like sandboxing and so on, that I would definitely advocate using uh, and not, not just zero trust. Chris Kuehl, any thoughts there? No, absolutely right. Yeah, um, you know, defense in depth is your friend. Uh, zero trust is, you know, is just a, an additional piece to that defense in depth. Uh, yeah, sandboxing is, has helped significantly in our environment um, for for email as well as the firewalls. Um, you know, and and uh, one of the other technologies that that Chris had mentioned earlier was DNS black holing. Uh, and, and setting up alerting and monitoring of, of that type of traffic. So, yeah. Very good. All right. Let's take a look at the poll results. I'm going to share them with you now. So the biggest obstacle to implementing zero trust, uh, device visibility has won out with 41%, followed by policy generation at 35%. Um, Jonathan, thoughts on that result? Um, I'm not, with the device visibility, I'm uh, certainly not uh, surprised. Uh, I think that, you know, we've, we've covered that throughout the, the conversation. And policy generation, uh, I think it, it speaks to, and also it, I can see it in the, in the next question, it speaks to, to automation. Uh, as we were saying uh, previously, once you have the visibility and the, um, uh, and, and the traffic flows, you then need to move on to actual Policy, uh, policy, gener policy generation that will be orchestrated across your uh, enforcement uh, vehicles uh, across your network. Uh, so definitely agree with that. And I'm not surprised to see that uh, that poll come up. Chris Kuehl, most important uh, in the zero trust architecture, uh, pretty pretty far and away adaptable policies at 47%. Your thoughts on that? No, it totally makes sense. Um, not surprised. Uh, you know, because in healthcare, right, our, our environments are constantly changing and we need to be able to uh, adapt on the fly to support that so that we don't impact patient care. I mean, we're, we are, a, a, you know, mission critical, right? Uh, you know, and um, anything that we do from a cyber perspective that could negatively impact patient care oh, is, is a good way to be, is a, is a resume to, generating event right so um yeah adaptable policies are, are definitely a must okay and then uh chris friends uh what do you use to enforce zero trust policy 71 percent firewall uh 53 nac and 47 iam identity and access management so firewall pretty far and away there I would largely agree with that. Um, I think NAC is also a, a very popular contender. Um, I know in my last place, we used a mix of both. So we did um, the NSX distributed firewall for the data center piece, and we used NAC for most of the physical devices on the network. So I think for most organizations, it's actually gonna be a combination of technologies. Um, and it also depends how you choose to define zero trust. Like if you're taking the pure network sense, then NAC and firewall definitely win out. If you start to expand the definition to other areas as becoming increasingly common, then you do see more IAM technologies uh, coming into play, application whitelisting technologies and, and other things. Because over time, the definition of zero trust um, is growing and that's not necessarily a bad thing. 
All right. Let's do our Ask a Co-Panelist. Jonathan, do you have a question for either or both of your co-panelists? Uh, I do for both. Uh, I would say uh, my question would be, was in your experience uh, in your various organizations when implementing zero trust, what was a bigger hurdle? Getting a management on board uh, in terms of the resources that are needed or the actual technical work? Uh, what was what was harder for you guys in your experience? Chris Franz? I can't really comment about the new organization yet because it's still um, too early on to really comment on that. But in the, the previous uh, job, it was initially getting the uh, management on board, basically convincing them of the need for the zero trust. And that's kind of where the simulation, which actually proved out the need, was really, really helpful in getting that kind of buy-in. Chris Kuehl? Um, we, we were kind of the opposite. You know, we um, uh, got, we're, we're very lucky. We got uh, leadership buy-in. Um, with just a few brief conversations, uh, some of the examples that were going on, you know, across the U.S. Um, so, you know, our, our leadership bought in pretty early on. Um, our biggest hurdle or or issue that we had was the outdated technology that was in place and having to uh, go through and, and identify what needed to be, what could support zero trust, what needed to be replaced and, and getting those things in migrated over and then start down the path of, of implementing. Um, so from us, for our perspective, uh, it was the technical side. All right. Very good. Jonathan, you have a final thought before I, I wrap us up today? Um, I think maybe just one final thought that I think, I think it came across uh, today, but just wanted to underscore, I think that besides the, the technical guidance and the strategy and everything that we've been uh, talking about today, uh, one advice that I could give out to folks that are starting uh, Zero Trust is that like, just uh, have some patience. It's not something that's done uh, overnight. It's a, it's a process and not necessarily a very short one. Uh, so Bear in mind that you're, you're going to be you're going to need a lot of patience and tenacity. But but this is the way to go, Jonathan. Is that would that absolutely. be when it? It's got to be done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, very good. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us. You can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our excellent panel today, Chris Friends, Chris Kuehl, Jonathan Langer, and Medigate for sponsoring and making this, I think, quite valuable conversation possible. And I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.